The talk you're about to hear is by Zen teacher Sensei Amala Wrightson. Today is the 25th of July, uh, 2023, and I'm going to take a little look at um, some aspects of the first precept, not to kill, but to cherish your life. Um, really want to talk and explore a little bit about non-violence. And um, I'll be reading again from a book that I've read before and promised we'd do more from. It's called Zen and the Art of Saving the Planet. And it's um, a posthumous publication of Thich Nhat Hanh's. It's got his, his teachings gathered together and in, in organized in a new format, plus some of his disciples, especially Sister True Dedication. Um, I settled on this because um, we did Duke Jukai about 10 days ago now, and um, doing it reminded me of, of how central the precepts are to the practice of Zen. They're, there's very much not an added extra, but, but uh, a, a distillation of, of how a bodhisattva conducts him or herself. You can almost look at them as a kind of um, operating manual. What does true nature in action look like? What does compassionate and wise action look like? Uh, another way of putting it would be, what does the Buddha do? Would the Buddha do in a situation? We can we can go to the precepts to to investigate that question. We also had a reminder last Thursday morning that um, New Zealand is no, no longer immune to acts of, of senseless violence. We had the shooting downtown building site. Um, two, two workers on the building site were killed, uh, Solomona To'o To'o and Tupunga Silipiano. Um, two men in their 40s, um, four others still in hospital now, and the gunman also killed in an exchange of fire with the police, Matu, Matu Reed. The background to the incident is, is just coming out slowly as, as it's investigated, but apparently Matu Reed um, had a attacked somebody the night before the, the shootings and threatened to uh, take her out. Um, he's wearing an anchor bracelet and this was on for a previous conviction for domestic violence. This struck me, this phrase, take her out, sounds like something from a, a game or a, a cartoon. And we can just wonder what influences he, he might have had on him, or a whole set of causes and conditions behind what happened. 
what produces people who are so um, dysregulated, you could say, so toxic. I think here of um, the statement made by um, Hui Nung, the sixth ancestor of Zen. He said, When I am in the wrong, I alone am to blame. When others are in the wrong, I too am to blame. This is a, a unique kind of way of, of taking responsibility. Uh, the first five of our precepts um, have been reworded in the order of interbeing at Thich Nhat Hanh's com um, community in ways that I think can can be quite quite helpful and bring out this this two-sided um, truth the, the truth of of we, we alone are to blame for our, our uh, missteps and, 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 and also at the same time we, we have a role to play in um, the missteps of others. And we'll, we'll, I'll just read out the, the Order of Interbeings rewording of the precept of not to kill, or expansion of it. And it's also of note that they call these um, not precepts but mindfulness trainings, the mindfulness training on reverence for life. And, and uh, Sister True Dedication says, that, that these trainings are not a philosophy, but a philosophy, but quite literally a training, something we train towards. But she also suggests it can be used as a, an, um, a kind of text to meditate on and to bring up, to contemplate. So, and through this, it becomes more internalized. But here it is. Aware of the suffering caused by the destruction of life, I am committed to cultivating the insight of interbeing and compassion and learning ways to protect the lives of people, animals, plants, and minerals. I am determined not to kill, not to let others kill, and not to support any act of killing in the world, in my thinking or in my way of life. Very, very important. This this working on our own um, inner violence as well as that around us. Seeing that harmful actions arise from anger, fear, greed, and intolerance, which in turn come from dualistic and discriminative thinking, I will cultivate openness, 
non-discrimination and non-attachment to views in order to transform violence, fanaticism and dogmatism in myself and in the world. So quite broad, quite a um, uh, steep teaching in terms of our really realizing it all, all the aspects of it. It reminds me a little bit of, um, of a line that appears in the Juju Kinkai, which is the, um, the book of koans on the precepts, which one does as part of the koan curriculum, where it says, to refrain from killing the mind of compassion and reverence. To refrain, that this is what the, the spirit of the precept, first precept, is to refrain from killing the mind of compassion and reverence. This is, this is how we cherish life, by, by um, cultivating this mind of compassion and reverence, guarding it, protecting it, nurturing it. I'm going to i read some passages for this and from this um, chapter on the re of reverence for life and, and comment on some of them. So for just a little bit about, um, this is from Sister True Dedication, about the word for, for path. She says in, in Sanskrit, the word for path is marga, not some kind of well-worn road, but a craggy path winding its way up the mountains, in time, um, in the, up the mountain. In times like ours, it may be hard to see a path forward. Everything is so foggy and uncertain. How can we trust what we see? Which way should we go? As you will discover in this book, mindfulness is a path, not a tool. It's not a tool to get something, even if that something is relaxation, concentration, peace, or awakening. It's not a means to an end, a means to improve productivity, wealth, or success. In true mindfulness, we arrive at the destination every step of the way. That destination is compassion, freedom, awakening, peace, and non-fear. True mindfulness can never be separated from ethics. If the insight you get from mindfulness is real, it will change how you see the world and how you want to live. And we can, we can substitute practice here for mindfulness. That our practice is not a tool to get something um, not a means to an end, but, but an end in itself, giving rise moment by moment to these qualities that um, are the, the uh, result of our practice.
Okay, just skipping forward here a bit. This passage is, is um, headed. Do you love yourself yet? If you don't respect yourself, it will be difficult to love and respect others or the earth. When you're caught in the idea that this body is you or this mind is you, you underestimate your value. But when you can free yourself from the notion of self and see your body and mind as a stream of being of all your ancestors, you'll begin to treat your body and mind with more respect. This is a lovely, a lovely term here. If you can see your body and mind as a stream of being of all your ancestors. So often we can have very, very rigid ideas about ourselves and our deficits and, and our good points and these can become very set. But if we, if we start to see that actually our mind and body are quite fluid, this can be very liberating. You may feel that you don't deserve love, but everyone needs love, even the Buddha. Without love, we cannot survive. So we shouldn't discriminate against ourselves. You need love, you deserve it. Everyone deserves love. For ancestors, your ancestors in you all need love, so why deprive them of love? They are still alive in every cell of your body. Perhaps in their lifetime they did not get enough love, but now we have a chance to offer them love by loving and taking care of ourselves. And we can understand the way that we, that we um, return the love of our our parents and grandparents and ancestors is by um, loving people now here, paying it forward. You are one of the wonders of life. Even if you believe otherwise, even if you despise yourself or think or think of yourself as nothing but suffering. The maple tree outside is also a wonder, and so is the orange you are about to peel. And you who are about to peel the orange and eat it, you are also a wonder. It is only your anger, fear, and complexes that prevent you from seeing it. You are as wondrous as the sunshine and the blue sky. Maturid was a wonder. Someone, many people probably, had contributed to his not being able to see this. He continues, It is possible to train ourselves to be able to breathe in and out mindfully and recognize the many good things that have transmitted, been transmitted to us, the seeds of compassion, understanding, love and forgiveness. We can have confidence in ourselves because we can see our ancestors in us. There is democracy today because our ancestors fought hard for it. We have beautiful cities 
art, literature, music, philosophy and wisdom because our ancestors have created them. Your ancestors are there in you. If they can do it, you can do it. You believe in yourself and you trust that you can continue what they could not do in their lifetime. He starts off this paragraph saying, it's possible to train ourselves to be able to breathe in and out mindfully. Perhaps the outcome would have been different if Matu Reed had learned how to breathe, how to work with very strong, powerful, being gripped by, by these emotions, anger specifically. I wonder what, what he knew of his tupuna and how that might have, how might have changed things. We don't know. Again, this is um, Sister True Dedication speaking. She's talking here about about how we how we integrate mindfulness into our lives. She says, "When I was working in London as a young journalist for BBC News, I had already begun studying with Tay at Plum Village." Tay is the, is the um, term used, I guess, a little bit like, like sensei or roshi um, when talking about Thich Nhat Hanh. She, she says, I asked a nun how I could keep my practice going when I got back to the city, and she told me I needed to create islands of mindfulness in my day. She recommended I get off the bus early and work, walk more of the distance to work. You just need to choose a stretch to walk in mindfulness. It won't add any minutes to your day and it will keep your energy of mindfulness alive. I chose a shortcut through a churchyard and every day, crossing the street and stepping through the gate, I entered a realm of full awareness. I could hear the traffic, see the trees, listen to the birds, feel the pulse of the metropolis and, and followed every single step and breath. Sometimes, if my thoughts were overtaking me, I'd pull up short, stop right there, take a deep breath and recalibrate the pace. I have never felt so close to the soul of the city as I did in those few moments of crossing the churchyard. One of Tay's close friends and students is a remarkable Zen teacher, Dr. Larry Ward. He writes about the healing power of being with Earth's wonders in his recent book, America's Racial Dharma. Racial, sorry, America's Racial Karma, an invitation to heal. And this is him talking. When I am in the natural world outside, 
I am moved by the experience of being not judged and unharmed by the politics of my skin. I hold a friend, told a friend recently that I have never been disrespected or intentionally caused to suffer by a tree or a rock. I touch the wonders of life daily and in doing so I nourish my heart and mind with the flow of beauty, vastness and gratitude as they rebalance wellness in my nervous system. Again, if Matthew Reed had been able to, to walk down to the, to the waterfront and just experience the sea lapping against the uh, piers, if he'd been able to breathe, stop and breathe, it's possible that lives could have been saved. The next section is headed, The Art of Nonviolence. The word for nonviolence in Sanskrit is ahimsa. It means not harming, not causing harm to life, to ourselves and to others. The word nonviolence may give the impression that you're not very active, that you're passive, but that's not true. To live peacefully with nonviolence is an art and we have to learn how to do it. Nonviolence is not a strategy, a skill or a tactic to arrive at some kind of goal. It is the kind of action or response that springs from understanding and compassion. As long as you have understanding and compassion in your heart, everything you do will be nonviolent. He's talking here about deep understanding and compassion imperturbable understanding and compassion. That as soon as you become dogmatic about being nonviolent, you're no longer nonviolent. The spirit of nonviolence should be intelligence. A police officer can carry a gun with nonviolence because if they use their calm and compassion to solve difficult situations, they don't need to use the gun. They may look as though they're ready to use violence, but their heart and mind can be non-violent. It is possible to arrest, handcuffed and, handcuff and imprison a criminal with compassion. And also, even from the Mahayana point of view, it is, it's possible that we uphold the precept by killing someone. And, and this sort of situation that we saw on Thursday was it exactly one of those, where you have somebody who's um, shooting people, then in that situation, the, the, the Mahayana view is that, that, that one can shoot somebody and still uphold the precept. Of course, what, what is crucial here is what is going on in the person's mind who does the shooting. And that's where the training comes in, how, how the police are trained to deal with that situation. Are they, are they filled with fear and um, aggression, or can they, can they come to it with, a, with a, a mind of compassion of doing the least harm possible?
Thich Nhat Hanh goes on to say that sometimes non-action is violence. If you allow others to kill and destroy, although you are not doing anything, you are also implicit in that violence. So violence can be action or non-action. Um, there's a, a very powerful film called The Shoah, which is about, I think it's about eight hours long. But one of the questions they ask is, asked was about the trains that took the um, uh, many, many millions to, of the Europe's Jews to the um, Auschwitz and the other camps and how it was that so many people saw these trains but did nothing about it. Non-action is violence. Non-violent action is also long-term action in the realm of education, agriculture, and art. You can, you can introduce non-violent thinking, non-violent action. Helping people remove discrimination is a fundamental action of non-violence because violence comes from discrimination, from hatred, fear, and anger. Long-term action. One of the the problems we, we come up against again and again in, in New Zealand politics is um, the shortness of our, our electoral cycle and how parties get caught up in, in presenting solutions, short-term solutions, and the long-term ones can be, can be lost. There has been an an effort to um, develop a, a, a wraparound response to young offenders um, with all the different agencies all cooperating to try and um, change the behaviour and the attitude of some of these young offenders. And for about 80% um, of them there is in the, in the time so far, they haven't reoffended. Today, for about an hour, Richard and I went to a, um, a, a tea, an afternoon tea, uh, at which the Deputy Prime Minister, Carmel Cipollone, was present, along with Priyanka Radhakrishnan, our MP for this area, Manga Kieke. And um, they were talking about this, these programs that are, are being rolled out in different parts, first in South Auckland and then West Auckland and now Central Auckland, and the effects that they're having. But this is not visible to most people. And people want to see punishment. They want to see um, ch quick change when these, these, these kids... Um, it's, not a, it's not been a quick process that is got them to where they are. Um, so it, it, takes, it takes patience and it takes will to stick with these um, programs which are not going to have quick results but will, will um, at least give the, these kids the chance to change. Discrimination itself is a kind of violence. When you discriminate, you don't give the other person a chance. You don't include them. And so inclusiveness and tolerance 
are very important in the practice of nonviolence. You respect the life and dignity of each person, helping people transform discrimination, hatred, fear, and anger before they become action. This is nonviolent action, and it's something you can begin doing right now. Don't wait to be confronted by a difficult situation to decide whether to act violently or nonviolently. Nonviolence can never be absolute. We can only say that we should be as nonviolent as we can. I think this is an important point. Um, we, we do as much as we can heading in that direction. But, for instance, just trying to avoid killing, killing um, insects, we, we know that they're just in in food um, gathering and preparation, there is going to be killing there. This, this is inherent in life itself, death. It goes on to talk about the military. When we think of the military, we think that what military, the military does is only violent. But there are many ways of conducting an army, protecting a town, and stopping an invasion. There are more violent ways and less violent ways. You can always choose. Perhaps it's not possible to be 100% nonviolent, but 80% nonviolent is better than 10%. Don't ask for the absolute. You cannot be perfect. You do your best. That is what's needed. What is important is that you're determined to go in the direction of understanding and compassion. Nonviolence is like a North Star. We have only to do our best, and that is good enough. North Star in the sense that something we navigate by, but we never actually reach it, we don't touch it. But we head that way, we orient ourselves that way. These are not easy decisions to make. Um, for instance, the um, it's very, very disheartening to hear that the the Ukrainian uh, government is is now using these cluster weapons because what they are doing in using them, and they obviously think it's necessary from a military point of view, but what they're doing is they're bequeathing blown off limbs and injuries to their own children because that's the the terrible thing about these munitions is they leave all these bomblets, unexploded bomblets in the soil and then they get they get found often with horrible consequences. Violence and war do not always involve weapons. Every time you have a thought that is full of anger and misunderstanding, that is also war. War can manifest through our way of thinking, speaking, and acting. We may be living at war, 
fighting with ourselves and those around us without even knowing it. There, are, there may be f a few moments of ceasefire, but most moments are war of war. Don't transform yourself into a battlefield. Suppressing or resisting your feelings can also be a kind of psychological violence. In Buddhism, in meditation, we train to be there for our suffering, anger, hatred or despair. Allow the energy of mindfulness to gently embrace and penetrate whatever feeling is there. You allow it to be, you embrace it, and you help it transform. I think all of us sooner or later have to deal with, with um, a kind of inner violence. If not, if not hatred, then aversion, strong aversion. Aversion to our own minds. We often don't like ourselves or are despairing of ourselves. Even an economic system can be very violent. Although you don't see guns and bombs, it is still utterly violent because there's a kind of prison that prevents people from being included. It's, um, uh, some material came from the uh, Salvation Army to us the other day, and it mentioned in one of its um, pamphlets that um, one in five children are now in a family that relies on welfare, one in five. And of course that welfare is not actually enough to cover living costs completely. It's, it's, a, it's certainly a kind of violence or even a, describe it as a kind of torment to be expecting people to raise their families without enough to do so, enough money to do so. The, the, um, suffering in, in that, in being set up for failure, really. Of course, there are many organizations staffed with, with compassionate people who are very much trying to, um, make up for this deficit, but it's, it's, it's a violent situation. He goes on um, a little bit, little bit later to talk about the time, his time in before he left Vietnam, and how um, he, for a while. Um, considered joining the um, the Marxists, the freedom fighters, because he was he was impressed by their 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 passion and their w willingness to die for their cause and to um, and they they wanted the, wanted the improvement in their in their country, but the more he looked, the more he saw that he really wasn't wanting to go the route, down the route of, of um, violent revolution because he might have to end up 
killing people, um, harming people. He says, the principle of not harming or killing is very important. You try to help, to save others because you have compassion in your heart. Compassion is a powerful energy that allows us to do anything we can to help reduce the suffering around us. In engaged action, you don't have to die to get your message across. You have to be alive in order to continue. We can get sent to prison, we can protest, but even if our protest is very strong, we, can, we have to remember that protesting may not be able to remove the fear, the anger, and the craving in those we are protesting against. A very important point. Real protest is to help them wake up and take a new direction. To do this is real action. We can do it by setting an example. Even if we know if we're very right in our cause, um, correct, aligned with reality as, to, as much as we can be, um, if the people that we're fighting against are coming out of a place of, of fear and anger and craving, then there's only so much change that will happen. That's, that's where um, training and meditation comes in. Because if, if we can train ourselves, liberate our minds, then we can offer that, that liberation um, to others. Still, of course, they have to be ready to take it up. But there is that dimension offered. And often this is done by setting an example. Not what we say, but what we do and how we do it. The types of communities that create we create together. Places of, of relative peace and um, non-harm, non-violence. He gives various examples of this to, to um, consume in a way that protects the planet, to speak and listen in a way that transforms anger and division, to live simply. This is a radical way of peacemaking. You embody good health for yourself and for the world and live in such a way that proves a future can be possible. There's always the danger that violence will harden people's attitudes. You see this in relation to the, the youth crime wave, that it just, it, most people, it, it pushes into a more, a more punitive and extreme position. And that, of course, means more harm to the very ones um, who are being punished, repressed. The laws, the laws, the repressive laws just perpetuate the cycle of harm. Next session, section is um, headed up, not taking sides. He talks about his, his own organization during the war, which was um, 
already, of course, once war has started, it's a huge polarization. That's that's really what war is when when people the people's ability to to communicate and to um, deal with the conflict is is broken down. He says during the war, Vietnam War there was a lot of fear, anger, and fanaticism. The communists wanted to destroy the anti-communists, and the anti-communists wanted to destroy the communists. We imported foreign ideologies and weapons, and soon brothers were killing brothers. The two blocs were being supported by international armies, monies, money, and weapons. Each side was convinced that their view was the best, and they were ready to die for their view. Inga describes how um, his organization d decided, made, a, made a, a conscious decision to not take sides. And they got punished for that. He says that at least when you, you take sides, you have the protection of the side you take. But when you, ta you, when you um, don't take sides, you're, you're literally, in some cases, shot by both sides. His organization was called the School of Youth for Social Service. And they did, in fact, get attacked from by the, both the communists and the anti-communists. Um, he tells the story of one, one night when um, armed men broke into the comp their compound and took five of the social workers. And they took them to the, the banks of the Saigon River and asked them many questions. And when they can, they were, it was confirmed that they were members of the School of Youth for Social Service, they said, we are sorry, we've received orders to shoot you. And they were, they, all five of them were shot on the spot. Um, one fell into the river and survived, and he was the one who came back to tell the tale of what had happened. We kill each other because we do not know who we really are. In order to kill someone, first of all, you have to give them a label, the label of enemy. Only if we see someone as our enemy can we shoot them without hesitation. But as long as we still see they're a person, another human be being, we can never pull the trigger. And so behind violence and killing is the idea that the other person is evil, that there is no goodness left in them. Our view is clouded by hatred. We believe the other side to be a villain, and yet that villain is only a view, an idea. In Buddhism, the sort of insight is, first of all, to cut off the view, the label. In this case, that a person or a group of people is evil. These, d these labels are dangerous. They have to be cut off. Views can destroy human beings. They can destroy love. And then he says, our enemy is not other people. Our enemy is hatred, violence, discrimination, and fear. We saw, we saw the way views can polarize people during the pandemic. People know that even, even in our sangha, we lost members um, because of our position, whether they were people feeling that we, they couldn't live with the restrictions on and of uh, people having to be vaccinated for that time when it was a requirement 
and also people who felt we didn't do enough in response to anti-vax positions. So, very painful. In the case of the School of Youth for Social Service, after this incident, they put it out that they, um, that they did not see the killers as the enemy. They made this, they made this very clear. And um, apparently after this, um, they, they were no longer attacked. So some, something, some message seemed to have got, got through to, the, to their attackers about where they were coming from. He says, many people misunderstood us, yet we still continued with our path because we had faith in ourselves and our values, and faith in our values. We had learned the truth that the root of suffering and violence is intolerance, dogmatism, and attachment to views. In such a situation, it is very important to not be attached to views, doctrines, or ideologies, including Buddhist ones, this is very radical. It is the lion's roar. Um, this is the sutra that we just studied over the three Sundays, um, the Diamond Sutra. This is a, one of the teachings of the sutra is even the Dharma it can become uh, attached to and we've got to release that, that attachment. Somewhere in his writings, Thich Nhat Hanh says that he would rather see, have seen Buddhism wiped out in Vietnam than to have fought for it violently. Time is up. Um, just finish off. with one little story and, and going back to our precepts. And this is, again, this is Sister True Dedication. She tells the story of somebody called Sherry Maples, who was a student of um, Thich Nhat Hanh's. Um, and she was a police officer in Madison, Wisconsin. And um, she, Sister True Dedication says, she was sharp, strong, and formidable, with bright eyes that were at once fierce and tenderly compassionate, as only a bodhisattva's can be. Sherry was a truth teller and a fierce, fearless spirit. In her life and action, she demonstrated that with a strong personal spiritual practice and a community to take refuge in, it is possible to realize far more than we ever thought possible. Sherry's first retreat with Tay was transformative. She loved the meditation, she loved the spirit of community, and was determined to continue her practice when she went home. But the practice of nonviolence and not killing seemed irreconcilable with her job. She carried a gun for a living. When she asked Tay about it, the response was, who else would we want to have carry a gun but somebody who could do it mindfully? Compassion can be gentle and compassion can be fierce. And as Cherry learned from Tay, wisdom is knowing when to employ the gentle compassion of understanding and when to employ the, 
the fierce compassion of good boundaries. Sherry became a real peace officer <laughs> and over the course of her career took her insights further, working to change and shift the culture around racial profiling, militarization and police standards for using deadly force. So another, yeah, encouraging story. So to finish with, just to repeat this mindfulness training one more time and then we'll recite the four vows. Aware of the suffering caused by the destruction of life, I am committed to cultivating the insight of interbeing and compassion and learning ways to protect the lives of people, animals, plants and minerals. I am determined not to kill, not to let others kill, and not to support any act of killing in this world, in my thinking or in my way of life. Seeing that harmful actions arise from anger, fear, greed and intolerance, which in turn come from dualistic and discriminative thinking, I will cultivate openness, non-discrimination and non-attachment to views in order to transform violence, fanaticism and dogmatism in myself and in the world. We'll now recite the four vows. All beings without number, I vow to liberate. The teaching you have received is offered freely. If you would like to make a donation to support the continuation of this podcast service, or learn more about practice opportunities at the Auckland Zen Centre, please visit www.aucklandzen.org.nz.